Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on the morning of Saturday, September 16th, 2023. It's our first podcast of the fall. I'm Tony O'Brien, Lehigh University. With me, as always, is Glenn Hubbard of Columbia University. How are you doing today, Glenn? Great, Tony. How are you? Doing very well. Uh, nice, cool weather here. Good dog walking weather and uh, the leaves are starting to turn and it's fall. So it's great. Uh, I'm enjoying it a lot. So Glenn, I thought we could start with what has been probably the biggest economic issue facing the country since inflation began to accelerate in the spring of 2021, which is more than two years ago now. And that is, would the Federal Reserve through monetary policy manage to bring the inflation rate back down to its target of 2% without causing a recession. So if you look at where we are now, if you if you look at inflation as measured by the Consumer Price Index, the CPI, it has fallen from a high of 8.9% in June 2022 to 3.7% in August, the most recent data we've got. As we talk about in, in the text, the Fed actually doesn't look at the CPI when trying to gauge whether it's hitting its target. It looks at the personal consumption expenditures, PCE index. And you get a similar story there that inflation peaked at about 7%. And the most recent um, uh, reading was 3.3%. So inflation is down a lot from where it was. We've had what economists call disinflation, meaning the inflation rate has fallen, um, not to be confused with deflation, which is prices actually falling. So what do you think? Uh, have Fed Chair Jerome Powell and his colleagues, have has he brought the economy in for a, a, a soft landing? Are we, are we going to make it back to 2% without a recession? Well, you know, it's a super important question, Tony. And, and first, I hope everybody who's listening had a good summer. I know Tony and I have been uh, working really hard uh, on the book, as well as taking a few breaks here, there, and yon, but hope, hope everybody did. The Fed, of course, hasn't had a chance for much of a break, because as you say, they're really trying to work on engineering a soft landing. And two things are important about soft landing, soft and landing. So let's start with landing. It still means landing. Right? So we are going to slow down and land. So uh, if, if people were thinking we could maintain relatively high rates of growth and have a smooth disinflation to 2%, that's probably not going to happen. And the question is about soft. Are we going to just gently touch the ground as we land or are we going to crash land with everybody in a brace position? I think it's likely to be somewhere in between. And, and let me go through why. I if you think about it from the Fed's perspectives, there were two things going on in inflation. One were supply factors um, in supply chains that we've talked about before in the podcast, that we talk about in the book. There were energy market dislocations. Those are working through, although recently we have had oil price increases that are driving inflation through gasoline uh, price changes. But a lot of what had caused inflation, probably about half of it, came from excess demand. Uh, part of it from monetary policy itself being very accommodative and partly from very expansionary fiscal policy during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and thereafter. That part 
is proving harder to beat. So when you say correctly that inflation came down from the high eights to somewhere in the threes, that sounds awfully good. But the hardest yards are going from the threes to 2%, especially since the Federal Reserve says that it wants to do so in a reasonably short period of time. So I'm skeptical that you can get there without a somewhat harder landing. I think the labor market, while it looks very robust, does have issues uh, underneath the hood. So can the Fed do it? 100%. Is it likely? I think much less so. And I think we may well see uh, very slow growth, if not a recession, not uh, in the next few months, uh, but over the next uh, year or so. What would we be looking for to, to tell the difference? One is, you know, the continued inflation readings on how well the Fed is doing and other are just events uh, that can move inflation. I mentioned oil prices, you know, more geopolitical events that could happen and uh, none of us knows. But what do you think? I think you covered the main points very well. I mean, one of the things that um, I've thought about is most economists, I think, were taken by surprise, not that we had the inflation, but as high as it got in the, the summer of 2022. And I think most economists, or certainly me at any rate, surprised that it has come down as much as it has without a significant slowdown in the economy, because the Fed has been, as we've talked about, pretty aggressive in raising its targets for the federal funds rate. And usually when that has happened historically, it has pushed the economy into a recession. So um, there, there's a lot that we maybe thought we knew about uh, macroeconomics and how the economy has worked that uh, has not uh, panned out quite as well as at any rate I expected. So I'm cautious about what's going to happen next because I, I feel I haven't been particularly accurate in what I thought was, was happening up until now. One other thing I think that's worth mentioning, it's something we talk about um, in the textbook and in a number of blog posts, and that is as we look at the economic data, particularly the data on employment, GDP, one of the things that's been true historically is that when the economy, when the, the business cycle, we hit a business cycle turning point, meaning that the economy is going to move into a recession or it's already in a recession and we hit the trough of the recession and expansion's about to begin. Those data series tend to be subject to very large revisions. Uh, we've seen that a number of times. We saw it in 2007, 2008. We saw it again in, in 2020, 2021, that um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Bureau of Economic Analysis end up going back often when there's been uh, a turning point and say, well, yeah, we did say initially that employment increased and real GDP increased, but now that we've gathered more of the data, um, it turns out that, that in fact, employment was falling and real GDP was falling. So one thing to be cautious of is that we may actually hit a turning point, perhaps we'll fall into recession. We may not know it right away because that's typically been the case. Um, so it's it's worth being a little bit cautious about that. Well, there's uh, another wild card too, because while monetary policy has become much more restrictive, we still have lingering effects of the last fiscal stimulus of people still spending down their balances. You know, consumer demand has been very robust. House prices are still high. 
And so in terms of wealth of most Americans, it's fine. The stock market had gone down, but has come back up a bit. So I think it's, it's really hard for the Fed right now. It's time for all of us to sort of go through all the conditional outcomes, but be honest with ourselves that we don't know which one's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. A related question I wanted to ask you about, and that is, as we talked about uh, on previous podcasts, I think we we may have had a blog post or two on this as well. And that is that if you go back and you look at the forecasts that were being made by the Fed's own staff, by the economists who work for the Fed and prepare forecasts, there was a period in which they were expecting a recession. And that if you looked at their forecasts, real GDP was falling, employment was falling. The Fed itself, certainly in the form of of, um, Chair Powell, never sort of predicted that or said, well, recession is coming. You can sort of see why. I mean, if you're Fed chair, you really can't say, yeah, I think a recession is coming because it's bound to be a self-fulfilling a self-fulfilling prophecy. But one thing that that Powell tended to emphasize in his testimony for Congress or when he would give his press conferences following the meetings of the Federal Open Market Committee is he kept getting back to his view that expectations were well anchored, by which he meant that his reading of the tea leaves, and of course, measuring expectations is itself a, a fraught exercise, but his reading of the data was that people, consumers, businesses, bond market, uh, investors, and so on, all were expecting that in the end, yeah, they would get back to 2%. And so he felt that that was a factor that was going to make it easier for them and that would make it possible, in his view, for them to avoid a recession. So uh, do you think that's right? I mean, have expectations played a particularly important role here in allowing inflation to decline without a recession occurring? It's an interesting question, Tony, because um, the current Federal Reserve inflation target of 2% has anchored expectations. And in, in when the Fed was uh, undershooting, when inflation was too low, expectations were still centered on two, even though actual inflation was somewhat less than two. Uh, and while some survey data has higher inflationary expectations, when you look at actual prices and bond markets, you know, expectations appear to be well anchored. It raises questions for us uh, as economists and, and in teaching the class of, you know, why do we have an inflation target in the first place? And why is it 2% if we have one? And, and I think it's an interesting question because when Alan Greenspan was chair of the Federal Reserve, he always said that inflation is about right when nobody's talking about it. In other words, um, you kind of know it when you see it. It's low and steady. And frankly, I kind of agree with Chair Greenspan. The problem with 2% is it's relatively arbitrary. We got to 2% because there was a commission chaired by a Stanford economist, Michael Boskin, and many other distinguished economists, who came up with the idea that given the way we construct price deflators, uh, a 2% inflation, given the way we're measuring inflation, is about price stability. That's how we came up with the 2%. Is that the right number for monetary policy? Well, who knows? We, we saw that we may want more wiggle room in inflation during the, last, uh, during the last cycle. That said, I can't imagine the Fed departing from it. 
initial conditions matter. A Fed that wasn't credible about inflation can hardly now say, well, no, forget two, it's three or whatever. So I, I think we're here. The good news is inflation remains uh, well anchored. And the expectations channel, as we stress in the book, is super important for interest rates. Yeah, those are good points. Um, and, and actually, at his uh, talk at the Jackson Hole meetings, Powell was was adamant that 2% is going to be what their target will remain. And I think he was responding to the fact that there has been a lot of discussion of maybe 3% would be better because we were close to 3% now. And so there are um, uh, some economists who have said, well, you know, maybe the Fed should think about declaring victory at 3% and not ring out that last 1%. And so to, you know, to, to students, 3%, 2%, why would we care? So what is the argument against saying, okay, you know, let's, let's stop at three and, and say we've done a good job? Well, I would say it's two things. One is even expected inflation has real costs in the economy, largely through tax non-neutralities and other mechanisms. So inflation matters. We don't want inflation. The question is, what's the right measure of inflation that suggests we're close to price stability? The second is about the credibility of the Fed itself. The reason I said that 2% is kind of a stuck variable because it's an initial condition is because anything other than that ruins the credibility of the Fed. You know, if the Fed pre-COVID had said, oh, no, 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 we don't mean two, we mean one and a half. Or now if they say three, you know, the errors are just on different size, it becomes clear that monetary policy may not know exactly what it's doing. So I wouldn't have picked two. Frankly, I wouldn't have even picked an explicit inflation target, but we did. And so having done that, I, I think we're there for all practical purposes. There have been some prominent academic economists that have questioned that, and that's a reasonable academic exercise. But for the Fed, I think it's two. Yeah, I guess another point is that um, the Fed does have as its goal, part of its dual mandate from Congress, price stability. And as you said, you know, Alan Greenspan said, we, we should have inflation at, at a level that um, people don't take it into account. They're not constantly worrying about it. They, they can, at, at two, that, that can happen, particularly as you say, as we discuss in the book, um, the measured inflation probably overstates the actual inflation because you know they have to make adjustments for quality changes in products. And there are other factors we, we discuss in the text that tend to cause the measured inflation to be higher than the actual inflation. Um, but at three, it's hard to make the argument that you're having price stability if prices are moving at three, even if three is a bit overstated, you're still, I think, um, might have difficulty selling to Congress for, for one thing, that you're actually meeting their, um, uh, their mandate. One other thing I thought was worth mentioning is, uh, it's kind of an aside, but you know, there's been a lot of interest in the 1970s lately because when inflation began to take off in 21, 22, the, the thing that we said on the podcast, blog posts and whatever, this is the highest inflation has been since the 1970s. So the question then is what was the Fed doing in the 1970s? And did, to get to the expectations thing, um, of course the Fed chair for most of that period was 
uh, Arthur Burns, a Columbia University uh, professor, uh, a very distinguished fellow, but one who um, uh, I think in hindsight has taken a lot of uh, criticism for allowing inflation to, to rise as much as, as it did. And I went back and I read some of the things that Burns was saying at the time. And actually there's a there's a very useful compendium of, of most of the speeches and testimony that past uh, Fed chairs have given on the St. Louis Fed's website. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. You can scroll through you know, testimony from 1973 or whatever. And one of the curious things that I saw <clears throat> about Burns, because a lot of times uh, the casual story about Burns as well, he kept promising he was going to bring inflation down. He never did. He lost credibility and so on. But actually, Burns was, was saying something um, rather interesting. And that is that during that period, he was emphasizing the fact that he didn't think the Fed actually could bring inflation down, uh, that they had enough tools because he felt that there were things going on in the economy. He mentioned fiscal policy a lot. There were budget deficits. He thought, well, you know, we, the Fed really can't fight against large budget deficits, although the deficits are relatively small compared to what we have now. But he also put an emphasis on um, what he thought was the ability of, of concentrated industries and automobiles and steel and whatever to push through price increases, uh, irrespective of the state of the economy. And he also thought that uh, labor unions were able to push through big wage increases. So he said, well, we get into a situation where unions bargain for higher wages and companies accept that because they know they can raise prices and then as prices go up, unions want higher wages and whatever. And he said, it's what can we do as the Fed? We'll do our best to keep the money supply from growing too quickly and raise interest rates, but we, we can't fight that. So in hindsight, it's hardly surprising that people thought that inflation was going to persist because if you have the chair of the Fed saying, well, you know, I'm not sure we can actually bring it down. And you're someone who is negotiating uh, labor contracts, or you're on a pricing committee for a company or in a bank trying to figure out what the right mortgage rate is, of course, you're not going to expect that inflation is going to come down if the Fed is, if the Fed chair himself is saying this. So I thought it was it, kind of an insight into just how different it is today, where there's just no doubt that, that Chair Powell will tell you, yes, the Fed does have the tools to bring the inflation rate down to 2%, and it may take a while, and maybe some ups along the road, but yes, we can do it. A very different kind of situation, partially, yeah. I think, because of how the economics profession has also evolved. Well, I think uh, Chair Powell is really uh, channeling Paul Volcker much more than he is uh, Arthur Burns. I mean, for Burns, I always felt Burns, Burns gets a bad rap um, for playing politics. He may or may not have. I mean, to me, the bad rap for Burns is the whataboutism that you describe, well, what about this? What about that? And a lot of these were actual policy errors. You know, many economists, particularly Milton Friedman at the time, pointed out some fairly significant errors that the Burns Fed was making. So I, I do think we've come a lot further in economic policy making from our profession. That said, there's still room for a lot of humility, because as we were talking about just a few minutes ago, it's hard to answer the question about whether we're going to have a soft landing. Glenn, let's talk. Let's turn to a new topic. Um, as you know, there have been substantial subsidies coming from the federal government to try to promote green energy. You know, last year, Congress and President Biden enacted subsidies to help firms 
engage with green energy. Um, you know, maybe they're manufacturing electric batteries for electric cars or wind farms, and um, it's taking the form of both uh, tax credits and loans. And we've also seen uh, direct subsidies to consumers, uh, particularly um, fairly generous uh, tax credits if you buy a an electric vehicle, if you buy a, a Tesla or one of the one of its competitors. So, what do you think about this? Are, are these subsidies needed? Uh, is this a good use of federal funds? Because as we talked about a lot in the book, the federal government, like consumers and businesses, faces trade-offs. So is the federal government putting its money in the right place in doing this? Well, it's a great question, and it's worth stepping back because it really touches on a lot of important topics in micro. So why would you think that markets couldn't get this right? Well, maybe there's some important externalities here. For example, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and markets by themselves aren't necessarily going to price that. The normal answer from economics, even you know Econ 101, would be, well, then price it. And so tangibly, that would be putting out a tax on carbon, and then people would innovate around that. There would be new technologies that use less carbon. There would be a reliance on alternative fuels. Um, that the reason economists generally talk about direct mechanisms like prices over indirect mechanisms like subsidies with a direct mechanism with a tax, people will figure out what the right way to reduce emissions is with a subsidy. You're picking a particular fuel or technology that may or may not turn out to be uh, the most effective one. So I think the jury's going to be out. It's certainly stimulating a lot of investment demand in uh, renewable energy and cleaner energy. And, you know, that's certainly a laudable goal. You know, query whether that could have been done much better uh, with a tax or with more subsidies for basic research in, um, you know, clean tech uh, investments. So we'll see how this ends. I fear it will end in a way industrial policy often does, which is in rent seeking and in, uh, if not misuse, maluse of taxpayer money. Yeah, I think that you're right. There are not that many examples of industrial policies that have been terribly successful because, as you say, you, you kind of take out of the hands of the market and individuals who have their money on the line making decisions on what they think might be best in terms of uh, responding to if you had a carbon tax. How can we take that into account when we, uh, we make our investment decisions and make it more of a political decision? And you know, politicians, you can't criticize them for wanting to be reelected and for wanting to uh, have funds funneled towards their home districts or um, others uh, favored groups. So it is uh, a, a, an interesting topic. I, I think maybe we can get back to it because there are a lot of ramifications for it. It is a lot of money. Uh, it may run into the trillions of dollars ultimately. And uh, actually, one thing that I that I noticed the other day was that um Goldman Sachs, the investment firm, was looking at the tax credit for electric vehicles, said it's $7,500. And the original budgeting when that when the law was passed was that that would amount to about $14 billion in lost tax revenue over a 10-year period. Goldman Sachs now thinks it might be $390 billion. 
over a 10 year period. So it, it's an example of how difficult it is oftentimes for politicians even relying on their economic staffs to come up with um, good forecasts of how people will actually respond. As it's turning out people are responding much more to that tax credit on electric vehicles uh, than Congress had thought when they passed the law. Okay, so thanks to everybody again for joining us for this conversation. Um, we'll remind you that we are on iTunes. So if you wanted to um, subscribe to us, you could do that. We also are continually posting uh, new information, new data, and new analysis to our blog. Uh, that's Hubbard O'Brien Economics, all one word, HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com. You can go to our blog. You can uh, sign up to follow us and you'll get emails every time we post something. So thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.